Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. Here's the big truth. The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. It's like when you love your home, you're thankful for your home, you're, it's, you know, it's, it's really special until one of your friends gets her Joanna Gaines farmhouse update. And she's like, hashtag ship slap, what is it? Slap wood? Ships, ooh, ship lap. Ooh. I think subconsciously I was afraid I might mispronounce that word. It's a dangerous word if you're a pastor and gets you into trouble. They get their kitchen makeover, and then you feel like your, your kitchen looks like trash. The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else, and it's never been easier to compare in the history of the world. Social media, you can be having a really good day, you pull up Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and you see everybody else is out having fun, and a day's ruined, and you're like, why didn't, why didn't they invite me? Or you see your friend, she's like, she's on her second vacation of the year, and you're like, oh, there she is, sitting by the pool, reading her book, taking a picture of her feet, overlooking the pool. You know, why do they always do that, you know? Like, I hate your feet, I hate the book, I hate your pool. It's so easy to lose contentment when you start to compare. Stephen Furtick said, the problem is we're, we compare our behind the scenes with everybody else's highlight reel. We know our everyday life, but for the most part, we see the best parts of everybody else's life. And before long, we can find ourselves miserable, because wherever comparison begins, contentment ends. As Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. So I want to look at just a few different portions of Scripture today. I want to start with Paul in 2 Corinthians. He said this in verse uh, 12 of chapter 10. He says, we don't dare put ourselves in the same class with those who think they are so important. We don't compare ourselves to them. They use themselves to measure themselves, and they judge themselves by what they themselves are. This shows they are not wise. He says, you know what? It isn't wise to say, look at how their kids you know, act all the time. Look how much money they're getting paid. Look at their relationship that I want, that, that I don't have and they have. In fact, one of the problems is comparing does two things. It either makes you feel superior or inferior, and neither honors God, right? It makes you feel better than or less than, and neither one of those results in honor to God. If you're better than people, that doesn't help you. If you're not measuring up to people, that doesn't help you. There's no win in comparison. There's no finish line. There's no final sense of satisfaction. And the thing is, it's not just a casual thing. It's a dangerous thing. You know how far it can go. Two of the gospel writers tell us that when the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus and handed him over to Pilate, two of them tell us that Pilate listened to the Jewish leaders, and then he realized, and even said, the reason they handed Jesus over to me is because they're jealous. They're envious. He has what they will never have. He has a crowd. People listen to him. He has has influence with people, and they wanted that. They wanted the crowd. And this envy thing, this jealousy thing, this comparison thing was so insidious, it drove them to actually hand over someone who was innocent in order to be crucified. 
Now, in a much less extreme way, comparison simply clutters our souls. And we have the potential to hurt people and allow people to hurt, to be hurt because of our tendency to compare where we are and where we aren't to the people around us. In fact, the, the wisest man who ever lived, other than Jesus, Solomon, he said this. He said that envy, if you let it go, envy ultimately rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. There's no win in comparison. So what do, we, what do you do about that? How do we not slip into this comparison trap where there's no win? Let's look at some things Solomon said in the Old Testament. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bibles, I like the book of Ecclesiastes. If you aren't a Bible person, I would encourage you to find a Bible and read the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you do, here's what will happen. You'll be reading along, and you'll be like, uh-huh, yep, yep. Oh, I didn't know that was in there. Oh, I think that's part of a song. Yeah, it's just amazing kind of what you find in Ecclesiastes. It's a great place to start if you're a skeptic, and it's packed full of wisdom. So Solomon, Solomon, who did, did more than you'll ever do, had more wives than you will ever have, um, whatever you think you're going to do and accomplish, you're not going to keep up with Solomon. Solomon, wisest man in the world, created one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, was one of the richest, the wealthiest people in history. <clears throat> Kings and queens came and sat at his feet. He said this, Ecclesiastes 4.4, 4, he said, I have seen that all the work done is because a man wants what his neighbor has. He says, I've been watching people. I'm a student of behavior. And I realize that the, for the most part, the thing that drives people is comparison and competition. The thing that drives people is they're trying to figure out what everybody else is doing, where they're shopping, what they're wearing, what they're doing, how much they're making, what they're driving, where they're living. People are driven by what they see people around them doing. So that's, that was 3,000 years ago. This has been going on for a long time. <clears throat> to summarize what he said, he said he saw people determining where they were based on where everybody else was. And this is his whole summary of that idea. This is amazing. Ecclesiastes 4.4. 4. This also is for nothing, like trying to catch the wind. It's meaningless. It's chasing after the wind can't really catch the wind. There's no finish line. There's never a sense of satisfaction. There's never peace. To which some people here might say, okay, so are we just, you're saying we're just supposed to do our, you know, not do our best? Are you saying we're not supposed to try? Are you saying we're just supposed to fold our hands and just sit back? But Solomon is the wisest man in the world, so his next statement is this, Ecclesiastes 4 or 5. Fools will fold their hands and starve to death. So Solomon says, don't think for a minute, I'm not telling you to be ambitious. Have you seen my temple? Have you seen my gardens? I got 300, 300 and something wives, 600 and something concubines. I'm a busy guy. I have more gold than Fort Knox. So I'm not saying you, you just sit around and do nothing or that you don't become the best you can be. I'm not saying that at all. Fools would fold their hands and do nothing. The idea is, in this little verse, is eventually if you do nothing, you're going to self-destruct. You hurt yourself. All right, Solomon, so what are you saying? Ecclesiastes 4.6, this is a great verse to memorize. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. <clears throat> and the ancient Hebrew imagery, imagery here is great. Here's what this looks like. He is saying this. It's better to have one hand open 
The implication being that God can put in it or take out of it whatever God wants. It's better to have one hand open and only have one, what one hand can hold than to have two fists clenched hanging on to everything you can get. It's better to have one hand open in tranquility. It's better to have one hand open and learn to be content with whatever one hand can hold than to have two fists clenched around everything you can get. Because if you live like that, there will never be peace. There will never be tranquility. He's talking about how to have an uncluttered soul here. Solomon, richest guy in his generation, planted forests. Forests. He had to build lakes to feed those forests. That to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, you see these craters called the Pools of Solomon that fed those forests. So I'm not saying you haven't built some nice things. I'm not saying you didn't landscape your front yard. I'm not saying you didn't do a good job. I'm saying, compared to Solomon, your boxwoods are kind of sad. This is a guy who says, I've been watching this, and here's what I determined. One handful. Better is one handful with tranquility than two fistfuls of stuff that you can't ever be satisfied with. Now, do we believe that? Because I think this is a game changer. Solomon, wisest guy in the world, doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He gives us another visual. Ecclesiastes 4.7. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Solomon says, I want to talk about some more meaningless things. Solomon makes meaningless things interesting. So he says, let me tell you about yet another meaningless thing I saw. Ecclesiastes 4.8. There was a man all alone. Now, we don't know if he actually had this friend that this happened to. We don't know if this was like a parable or, or what he goes on. Ecclesiastes 4.8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. Which meant in this culture he had nobody to leave anything to. You couldn't leave stuff to your wives. Woman can inherit anything 3,000 years ago. So he says there's this man. He has no one to leave anything to. He's all alone. And yet check this out. There's a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So he says, here's this guy. I'm watching him. He's a friend of mine. And he works and he works and he works and he works and he works. He's never content. There's always more to do. There's always another goal. There's always something else to do. There's always something else to achieve. There's always something else to build. They just work and work and work, and they're never content. And then he says this guy stops, and he asks a very important question. Ecclesiastes 4.8. For whom am I toiling? Yes. Why am I doing this? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Why is it I can't stop and enjoy what I spent my life in order to get? To translate for us, this is, I get this stuff, or I get this family, I get these relationships. I get all these great things, and I'm not even really enjoying it. He says, who am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? What's driving me? And then Solomon summarizes it this way. I love this, Ecclesiastes 4. This too is meaningless, a miserable business. It's a miserable business. It's allowing yourself to be driven by comparison. As long as you're trying to always have two handfuls, doesn't matter what's in your hands. Doesn't matter what you accomplish. Doesn't matter how smart your kids are. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter what your GPA is or what you made on your SAT. As long as your mindset is like this, it's a miserable business. And you'll never be able to enjoy your life. Bottom line, 
The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. What if we learned to catch ourselves when we started to do this with ourselves? Here's the, here's the deal. The bottom line is all of us are using something or someone as a mirror. All of us are looking somewhere to determine how we're doing. And the bottom line and the thing you have to determine is this. What or who am I going to use as a reference point to assure me that I'm okay? To tell me that I'm doing all right? And you know what I've learned? The, the older I get, it just seems like you should, we should move past this. But there's something in all of us that's looking for approval. For something or someone to tell us, you're okay. You don't need to do any more. You don't need to do any less. You're fine. So the question is, for whom are you toiling? Where are you looking? Is it your dad? Is it your family? Is it dollars? Is it your boss? Is it the industry you're in? Is it how you look? Is it how well your kids do? Is it how well your husband does? I mean, what's your mirror? What or who are you looking to to feel like I'm okay? And Solomon says, if you look to somebody to your, to your left or your right, if you're not careful, you're going to start grasping and clutching with both hands. And you're never going to feel like you're okay no matter what you achieve. Solomon, who had it all said, is chasing after the wind. So who do we look for for our approval? Let's see what the Bible says about this. Galatians 4, 5. God sent him to buy freedom for us who are slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Paul says when God sent Jesus into the world, the goal wasn't simply to say, well, you're, you're forgiven of your sins. The goal wasn't simply to say, you get to go to heaven when you die. He says it's bigger than that. What God did when he sent his son into the world was, he made it possible for you to be, and he chose this word intentionally, to be adopted as his children. Now, in the context of when and who this was originally written, when he said adoption, here's what did not come to mind. Babies. Nobody, ado nobody adopted babies in the first century. You would never think to adopt a baby because a lot of babies died. In fact, they wouldn't even name their children until they were sure the children was going to live. But it was very common to adopt adults. So when Paul wrote this, his audience, what they heard was this. The God who knows you as an adult, God who knows your sin, God who knows your failure, God who knows your past, God who knows everything about you, sent his son into the world and he made it possible for you to be adopted into his family. You have become his child. There has not just been some transaction where you've been forgiven and you get to, get to go to heaven when you die stamp. He said, no, this is, it's personal. You have been adopted into the family of God, and God is now your father. Let me ask you a question. Who do perfect parents compare their children to? Who do perfect parents compare their children to? The answer is nobody. So I want to ask you a question. Who does your perfect heavenly father compare you to? Let me ask it a different way. Whose estimation of you should you believe? Someone else's, yours, or his? 
Hasn't every parent had that conversation with their children or wanted to have that conversation with their children where you say, oh gosh, son or daughter, if you could just see you the way I see you, the difference it would make. Honey, if you would quit looking at her or if you'd quit looking at him, if you could just see you through my eyes, you'd have so much more peace. I think God would say the same thing to us. He'd say, I love you, and I want you to look right here for your affirmation, for your approval. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to do things through you. I'm going to do things in you. This isn't about being passive. This isn't about throwing up your hands and doing nothing. I mean, there's so much potential in you that your father sees, and God has a plan for your life, and God has a will for your life. And the great thing about having this perspective is this. You wake up every morning and all you have, have got to know is, God, I want to be in the center of your will to the best of my ability. I'm not as cute as him. I don't have as much money. But to the best of my ability, I know that I am in the center of your will. And I want what Jesus wanted. I want to have the mind of Christ. I just want to do the will of my dad. Now you do with me all you want to do. Do in me and you accomplish through me all that you want to, want to accomplish through me. But I will not fall into the habit of comparing myself to the people around me. Because I know I'm fine, because I belong to you, Lord. All right. So, I just want to ask you a few make-you-mad questions, okay? These are going to make you mad. Are you exhausted from trying to keep up with Fill in the blank. Are you exhausted? Are you tired? Let's be honest. Is there something in you that's like, oh, I wish I just didn't even know what they have. I wish I just didn't even know where they're going on vacation. Because in our culture, see, here's the deal. If you, if you lived on your farm and it was you and your spouse and your three kids and once a month you went into town for supplies and there was no internet, you'd be so content. Because it's awareness. It's awareness that drives our discontentment. But awareness isn't going away. So let me ask you a question, something. Is there something in you that you're just kind of tired from trying to keep up? Second question. Are you broke from trying to keep up with fill in the blank? Is, is this part of your financial issue? Has keeping up with, I don't know who, has it contributed to your financial problems? That's all I'm asking. Could that be part of the issue? Next question. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? Because you have eight-foot ceilings, and they have ten-foot ceilings, and now you hate your house. It's like every time I walk in here, I feel like I have to duck now. And now you don't want to enjoy your home. Your home. Your house was the same house you loved when you bought it. But now... You've seen some other houses, and your house no longer measures up. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what you have? You know what that is? It's chasing after the wind. Because even if you got what they have, guess what? Somebody with 12-foot ceilings out there. Somebody with a bigger, nicer house. Are you allowing what others have to keep you from enjoying what God has allowed you to manage and own in this life? Are you allowing what you don't have to keep you from enjoying what you do have? How about this one? 
Do you enjoy your kids or are you driving them crazy? Because of what everybody else's kids are accomplishing. He's making you mad. Do you enjoy your children or are you pushing and pushing because did you hear about so-and-so? He's going to do such and such. I mean, can we just take a deep breath and enjoy our children? Do you know that there are couples who would love to have had your your child, your son, your daughter, and they can't? Can you enjoy them or are you just going to drive them crazy because of what somebody might think of you, about you as a parent? And some of you know all about this because that's the kind of family you grew up in. So perhaps your inclination would be to kind of repeat that very same kind of parenting style. Next question. Is it possible that your husband or wife feels like you are dissatisfied with him or her because of your propensity to compare to other husbands and wives? In your mind, you're constantly playing these tapes. I wish he had... I wish she was. I wish he looked like. I wish she looked like. I wish he worked like. If it's a constant, every time you look at him, every time you look at her, it's in comparison. You do realize you're undermining what you have said at one point is the most important relationship in the world to you, which is your marriage. Next question. Who would you secretly enjoy seeing fail? I hate that question. Who would you secretly enjoy seeing fail? Isn't this the ugliest part of the human spirit? When someone I say I care about, or I say as a friend, or it's a coworker, or you fill in the blank and you hear something bad that happens, and of course on the phone you're going, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. But there's a little itty-bitty something in you that feels kind of good. Who would you secretly rejoice seeing fail? Seems like they have this amazing life, then you hear there's a little bump in their relationship. There's a little bump with one of their kids. There's something in you feels a little relieved. It's ugly, right? Do you know what that is? That's this thing we're talking about. Imagine if all that went away, and I could just rejoice with people when things go well, and I could genuinely mourn with people when things don't go well. Last question. Are you chasing after the wind? See, here's the thing, then we're done. You see, you can't genuinely love someone that you secretly hope will fail. You can't genuinely love someone that you're pushing to perform better so you'll feel better about you. In other words, you can't really be a sincere follower of Jesus and chase the wind at the same time. This is a spiritual issue. If you're a Christian, this is a profoundly spiritual issue. So together, let's knock it off. Let's stop looking to our left and right to get our approval and take our cue from the one who loves us, from the one who created us, the one who redeemed us. Because our greatest potential is found within the will of God. It's within the will of God that I will accomplish all that I'm to accomplish, do all I'm supposed to do, and be all I'm supposed to be. So why would I look to my left and my right? Here's your liturgy for the week, your homework. Uh, Like the past couple weeks, set your daily alarm just 10 minutes early, then rather than reaching for your phone or any other device first to catch up on social media, news, email, reach for your Bible. Read and meditate on a different verse this week, Ecclesiastes 4, 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil 
and chasing after the wind. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Just read that. Meditate on it. Take it in. And then just pray. Heavenly Father, I want your will for my life. I'm far more interested in what you think about me than what other people think about me. I want to take my cue from you. God, give me your eyes to see me the way that you see me. And I'm telling you, you know what you'll find? You'll find what can only be found in the center of God's will, which is peace. Peace when you do well. Peace when you fail. Peace when you win. Peace when you lose. Peace when you make the team. Peace when you don't make the team. Peace when the scale says, way to go. Peace when the scale says, not such a great week. Whatever it is, you never find peace anywhere but in the eyes of your Heavenly Father. Because his estimation of you is more important than everybody else's combined. Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Peace is found in the center, in the eyes of your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, this is uh, simple, but it is so profound that we can call you not that we can just call you Father, Lord. Pray that that would go from our heads to our hearts. Father, in this moment, would you just give us enough imagination to just imagine what it would be look like, what it would look like to live with that kind of peace, to live with that kind of confidence. That to know that all I have to do is wake up every day and say, God, I want to do your will. I want to do your will. I want to find myself in the center of your will. We love you, Father, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.